when I was a teenager, my family took a vacation to Lake Tahoe. And one afternoon, we went and played tennis. And uh, as we were finishing up, we were leaving the courts, uh, we, were, we walked past an older couple. And I didn't think anything of it, but my dad stopped and said, Dr. Kennedy? And the man stopped and said, yes, and it was D. James Kennedy. Now, for some of you, you don't know who that is. That's fine. But for others of you, you will recognize that name. He was a well-known pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He wrote a number of books. Uh, he was on TV. He was not a televangelist, but they televised his services. And uh, most importantly for my family, he was the founder of something called Evangelism Explosion, which was an evangelism method uh, that our church had adopted that my dad uh, was a trainer in, and so my dad was very honored to meet Dr. Kennedy, and he invited him and his wife to where we were staying to have dinner with us, and they came, and we ate dinner together, and then as we were sitting around after dinner, my dad said to Dr. Kennedy, he said, you know, I have heard that you're a very good ma magician. And Dr. Kennedy said, well, do you have a pack of cards? So we found a pack of cards, and he had me draw one of them, show it to everybody, and then put it back in the deck, you know, shuffle the deck, and then he picked out my card. And then after a few more increasingly impressive tricks, my dad said, well, you know, the greatest magic trick I've ever seen was on The Tonight Show when a magician named John Carney came, and he took a pack of a deck of cards, and he threw them on the floor, and Johnny Carson's card flew up and stuck to a window pane. Dr. Kennedy said, I can do that. Really? And indeed, we picked a card, put it back in the deck, shuffled, took the deck, threw it on the floor, and the card we had picked flew up and stuck to a sliding glass window. To this day, I have no idea how he did that. Uh, but that's the fun of magic. It's amazing. Until you learn the tricks, right? Until you learn how to do it, until you've practiced it, and you realize a lot of it is sleight of hand, hidden compartments, deception, right? I have, a car, I have one, one card trick, right? And it's all based on math and uh, deception, basically. Don't look that way. Look this way. Look at these cards. And if you're watching closely, you'd figure it out right away. But if you're not, you're like, wow, it's amazing. Now, when we talk about magic, I think there's really two kinds of magic. There is what I would call fun magic, Dr. Kennedy was doing. And then what we might call black magic, which either involves or attempts to involve a supernatural power to it. In Acts chapter 8, we are going to meet a magician named Simon, Simon Magus. Now, there's some speculation that he might have been uh, somehow related to the Magi, Magus, Magi, who went to see Jesus, the wise men. That's a little speculation. Um, but before we meet Simon, we are going to meet a man named Philip, who was a deacon in the early church, but also an evangelist. 
And Philip was going around uh, as the apostles were forced out of Jerusalem by persecution. He was going, he had gone to the region called Samaria in order to preach the gospel, but not only to preach, but also to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And we're told that he went to the region of Samaria, which is uh, an interesting detail because Jesus' instructions at the beginning of the book of Acts are, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right where they were, Judea, the surrounding area, and then Samaria, right outside of Judea, and then the ends of the earth. And so we see, as Philip goes out, the apostles beginning to fulfill Jesus' instructions to be witnesses. We pick up our reading in verse 9 of, chap- of Acts chapter 8. So if you are able, please stand for this reading of God's word. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is God's word for God's people and for the good of the world. Please be seated. The Bible does not deny the reality of magic. In fact, in the book of Exodus, we see Pharaoh's magicians attempting to match Moses, the miracles that God was doing through Moses by turning water into blood and and changing a staff into a serpent. And then in 1 Samuel, we see King Saul going to a witch who calls up the prophet Samuel from the grave. Now, we're not told specifically all the time how those magicians are able to do those things. It might be, we assume that they were either illusionists just pretending to do magic, or that they were given that power by some evil power. For Satan himself has supernatural power and evidently can give it to people. Acts 8 
is not the only place in the book of Acts where the apostles encounter magic. There's a number of other places. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, they meet a magician named Elemus who tries to keep people from believing God's word. What does Paul do? He strikes him blind. And then in Acts 16, Paul and Silas meet a slave girl who can tell people's fortunes. And Paul casts the evil spirit out of her, takes away her fortune-telling ability. He gets in big trouble for that. And then in Acts 19, there are some exorcists, the sons of Sceva, who are using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. But they meet a demon who turns on them and beats them and humiliates them. Now we see warnings in the Bible against using this kind of black magic. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft. Revelation 21, Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Severe warnings. Now, looking at Christianity from a distance you may be tempted to ask, well, I mean, isn't Christianity basically magic? <laughs> I mean, after all, how did Jesus walk on water? How did he turn water into wine? I mean, how did a virgin become pregnant? How did a dead man rise from the grave? It's all magic, right? No. The Bible says no, that that is the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a different thing altogether. We're forbidden in the Bible to practice magic associated with evil, but we are greatly encouraged to allow the Spirit to work in and through us. So what are the big differences between the Holy Spirit and magic? Well, the first thing we see from this passage is that the Holy Spirit is not given to make you famous. Now, Simon is a guy who wants to be famous. Now, we don't have to guess that. I'm not imputing motives to him. We're told that right there. Verse 9. He had previously practiced magic in the city, amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. He's a celebrity. Maybe a self-proclaimed celebrity, but he likes his celebrity status. And notice his approach and the very different approach that Philip takes. Right? Philip, or Simon, makes it all speaking of himself. Look at me. I can do this stuff. I'm great. But what does Philip do? Verse 12, Philip speaks of the good news of God's kingdom. And the name of Jesus. Philip doesn't proclaim himself. He proclaims Christ. And the people who had paid attention to Simon are now paying attention to Philip. And the people who had been in awe of Simon. But even now, Simon is in awe of a greater power. And he sees a way that he might be able to come, become more famous. Right? He sees Philip healing crippled people and casting out demons. And he realizes... This is the real thing. I, I think I, I have a bunch of parlor tricks, but this is real power. How can I get this? But if Simon was looking for something 
that would make him famous. He was looking in the wrong place, wasn't he? Because the Holy Spirit's job is not to make us famous. The Holy Spirit's job is to make Jesus Christ famous. His job is to make Jesus known in his people and in the world. You know, it's interesting, of the, of the three persons of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit is, is mostly behind the scenes working. You know, when you read the Bible, you see God the Father and God the Son constantly being quoted as saying this or that. But there's almost no direct quotes from the Holy Spirit. There are a few here and there, but for the most part, he's kind of like a, a quiet partner, a, a shadow operative, if I can use that term. Now, he does speak through people. King David says in 2 Samuel that the Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. And in fact, the whole Bible was inspired and in some sense written by the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit's main work is to comfort and to guide believers and to reveal Christ and all his benefits to his people. Jesus tells his disciples, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus speaks the words, but who helps us remember them? The Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Again, the Spirit's job is to help you know God the Father and God the Son better. The thing about magic is that it's, in some senses, it's all about the event, Right? Look at me. Look at what I can do. Poof! Are you not entertained? But the Holy Spirit, when he does miraculous things, the goal is not just the act, but to go beyond that. To be led to the one who is the giver of life. The power beyond the miracle. In fact, in verse 6, the healings that Philip did are not called magic. Do you know what they're called? They're called signs, which is interesting because it's the same thing in the book of John. When Jesus does miracles, he calls them signs. Why? Because they point past the miracle, past the spectacular to the Messiah, to the Savior. But he really wants you to know. Magic is often about deception, but the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. You know, there are a lot of reasons that people get into ministry. Ideally, it's because you love the church, you love people, you want to serve God and serve others. But one of the reasons that people get into the ministry is that ministry can bring you a kind of celebrity. Now, let's be honest. It's Christian celebrity, right? It's just like D-list Hollywood at best. But it can be a way of being known, of being somebody. I once had a pastor tell me, you know, I, I really want to be known. I want to I be the one speaking at the conferences. I said, look out, brother. Uh, it, it can be a way 
of becoming known and having people think you're special. And that desire to be famous, to be known, I think most of us can identify with, right? Who doesn't want to have millions of dollars? Millions of people just want to take a selfie with you. But where does that desire come from? And I think deep down it comes from a desire that we think if we get famous, if we think if we are known that we will finally feel successful and loved. Don't we? But that's just not true. I mean, ask any famous person, and if they're honest with you, they will tell you that being famous is very different from being loved. Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous, do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Russell Brand once said, I, I thought it would be good to be rich and famous. Now that I've been on the other side, it's not worth it. It don't feed your soul. I still feel empty inside. Eric Clapton talked about, has talked about how the height of his career, he had millions of dollars, a solid gold career, future influence, and yet he wanted to commit suicide every day. See, being noticed, being adored, is not the same thing as being loved. Being famous is not at all related to being happy. And so the Holy Spirit is not really interested in making you famous. But another thing we learn in this passage is that the Holy Spirit cannot be bought or forced. Now Simon, when he comes to the apostles, he does the thing that makes the most sense to him. He offers them money for this power, right? In exchange for the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes off on him. He says, your money can perish with you. Because you thought you could buy off God you need to repent and get right with God. Now, that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, Luke tells us that Simon believed. And in some ways, he believed the message that was being spoken. And he's just doing what he thinks is right, giving them money for something in return. I mean, let's be honest, what pastor ever turned down money for the ministry, right? But... Peter, I think, can, can tell. He can surmise Simon's heart. And he, what he sees is a heart that doesn't want to give glory to God as much as get glory for himself. He might even be thinking of Jesus' parable of the sower, where the seed that gets thrown on thorny soil starts to grow up, but the, what? the riches and the cares of the world grow up and choke it out. And that faith doesn't grow. And so Peter tells Simon to pray, verse 22, because the intent of his heart is wicked and needs to be forgiven. And why? What was the intent of his heart? To control the Holy Spirit. Right? See, if you buy something, it's yours. You own it. You control it. You can sell it. I think that's what Simon was trying to do. That's what he'd probably done all his life. Magic is something you can control, but the Holy Spirit you can't control. Do you know that in Hebrew, uh, the word for wind is ruach, is the same word for the Spirit. 
that interesting? And the Holy Spirit is spoken of like a wind. You ever try to control the wind? (laughs) You can't. You cannot control the Holy Spirit. But we try, don't we? We try whenever we try to force God to act, to put him in our debt. We try to control him. Whenever we say things like, you have to pray bold prayers in order to take the limits off of God. Or if you pray with enough faith, God has to answer you. When we do that, we're trying to control the Holy Spirit. Now listen, we need to pray with faith. And God does listen to our prayers, and our prayers move him to action, absolutely. And yet God cannot be forced. He cannot be controlled. He is free of our control, and he is not for sale. Why? Because the gift of God is free, and it will cost you everything. Here's the thing. If you could buy God's gifts and his presence, then the poor would be out of luck, wouldn't they? I mean, if it were a matter of money, then Christianity would only be for the rich or those who could afford it. And yet Jesus says that the gospel is good news for the poor. He says, blessed are you poor, for you will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because salvation is free. It's free. Not only does it not cost any money, it doesn't even require you to do anything except repent and believe. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourself, so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God. You can't pay for a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. Imagine if it's Christmas morning and I open a present from one of my daughters and it's, I don't know, a new Pittsburgh Steelers golf bag. I don't know why, just this what-if scenario. And I open it and I say, wow, this is fantastic. I love it. I'll pay you back. They'd say, what? What, what are you talking about, Daddy. I don't want you to pay me back. It's a gift. I want you to enjoy it. See, Peter is angry at Simon because he's trying to pay for a gift that God only gives freely. But this idea, this idea that the most important thing in the world, salvation, eternal life, which the Holy Spirit brings, is free. That idea that it's free is hard for us, isn't it? We want to try to earn it. We want to to be worthy of it. And it's a deep-seated belief that, that money gives us meaning, right? That it shows that we're successful, that we've made it, how important and worthy we are. Ted Turner once said, life is a game. Money's how we keep score. Brutally honest. A wealthy philanthropist once said, if there is a God, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to get interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. To him, I think Peter would say, your money perished with you. You can't buy your way into heaven. 
You can only receive it as a gift. But here's the thing. When you receive the gift of God, it will become the most important thing to you. When you realize what you have been given, when you are given the Holy Spirit, when you are given eternal life, when you are given forgiveness of sins, because all of those things come together when you become a Christian. You get all of them at the same time. When you get all of that, when you become a citizen of heaven, you will realize that 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 will become the most important thing in your life. It will become your priority. The apostles had received the Holy Spirit. What did they do? They then took the message to the ends of the earth. Despite beatings, despite imprisonments, they took it in order to tell others good news. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13. It goes like this. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now you think, Pastor, that, that sounds different from what you just said. That sounds like if you find the gift, the treasure, then you should go and sell everything and buy it. Didn't you just say the salvation's free? Yes. But here's the way into this parable. What you have to recognize is that ultimately Jesus is that man. Jesus is the man who found the treasure in the field. Who's the treasure? You are. And he gave everything for you. Left the throne of heaven, came, took on the form of a servant, and died on the cross for you. Gave everything to have you. And how will you inevitably respond to such love? You will <laughs> want to give everything for, to have him. See, one evidence that someone has received the free gift of God, salvation and the Holy Spirit is that they prioritize it. They recognize its value. Right? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Why did he say that? He didn't say it because he wanted you to earn your salvation. Nope, you can't earn it. And he didn't say it because he wanted to punish you for following him. No. What was he saying? He's saying that because he knows that doing so Following him, whatever the cost, will bring you the greatest joy. When the disciples were beaten for preaching Jesus, what did they do? They rejoiced that they were found worthy to suffer for his name. Friends, have you, have you found the treasure hidden in the field? If you have, you know that he is worth everything. And when you do, you start asking different questions, right? You don't, you don't ask, do I have to go to church today? You start asking, when do I get to go and worship the one who saved my soul? You don't ask, how much do I have to give to the church? Is it like a tithe to a 10%? What a, no, you start asking, how much do I get to give so that other people will hear the good news? Even this week, I have a confession, right? As I was working this week and thinking about this sermon, 
my, my thought process, my question was, how much work is this sermon going to take? And I'll admit to a little bit of grumbling. But when I got up this morning, I began to pray. It was the Holy Spirit who brought to mind, you get to preach the good news. You get to tell people about Jesus. I get to give my life in service to the King. And it's worth it. The love of Christ is rich and free, fixed on his own eternally. T'was love that took their cause in hand, and love maintains it to the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are active in this world, that you are not remote and just watching from above, but that you are making things happen in this world according to your plan. And you are even doing miraculous things every day as even someone coming to Christ is a miracle of new birth. And Father, we recognize the power of the Holy Spirit and we want to have more of him. And Father, we are so grateful that we have been given this gift of salvation this gift of eternal life for free. And now we want to share it. And we want to live according to the change that it makes in our hearts and live in line with the gospel. Would you help us to do that? Holy Spirit, would you uh, help us to root out the sin deep in our hearts, those things that keep us from joy. And may it be our joy to follow you no matter what. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.